All right, good afternoon, everybody. Thanks for listening. This is a Friday edition of the podcast, the Value Hive podcast. Normally, we record earlier in the week, but I saved a really good episode for the end of the week, and I think you guys are going to enjoy our guest. Today, we have Moses Kagan from Adaptive Realty. Moses, uh, I followed him on Twitter for a while. I've been stalking his stalking his feed, which is how I, how I get a lot of these <laughs> guests on here. And I really liked what he was saying and talking about. And he doesn't go into uh, public markets or, or, or public investing in stocks, but he does all of this stuff kind of in real estate. And I think he a lot of what he does is this cool, interesting value investing style within his real estate, his niche real estate market. Um, so we're going to we're going to talk just about his his upbringing, how he started in real estate, what he looks for, how he values properties, and get into some of the things that uh, grind his gears, like remote third-party real estate investing that's very popular with millennials. So Moses, without further ado, thanks for joining the show. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, I know just from my initial research that uh, you're originally from upstate New York. And so I have to ask, as someone who went to Syracuse for a year and a half, um, were you around that Syracuse area? Well, I'm uh, Troy, where I'm from, is east of Syracuse, but I went to wrestling camp at Syracuse uh, when I was maybe 12. So I know the, uh, know the camp as well. Nice. Um, and uh, yeah, so Troy is like right near Albany, New York, about three hours or so north of New York City. It's... Uh, I wouldn't say there's a ton to recommend it, but it's a good place to be from. Let's put it that way. Awesome. Yeah, no, it's 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 a cool little town. And if you know, if, if anybody's upstate, definitely get a chance to swing by the Syracuse campus. It's it's pretty unique. Um so for those again that, that, that don't know, I you know, I said that you're in real estate, but what exactly do you do day to day? What do you do for a living? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So um I would describe our business as um sub institutional scale uh, value add multifamily investing in Los Angeles. And I'll kind of let me break that down a little bit, uh, for, for your listeners. So our model is to go buy, um, smaller buildings, smaller apartment buildings in Los Angeles. It's actually only like five or six neighborhoods in Los Angeles. Um, we find these small, super beat up buildings. We buy them, we, uh, gut renovate them. Uh, we, we retenant them. Uh, with with new tenants paying higher rents that reflect the fact the building's been fixed up. We uh, and then instead of selling the business, most people in real estate private equity would sell that business, sell that building. Excuse me. Um, instead, what we do is we go to a bank, we get the bank to value the building based on the new stabilized rent roll, and that allows us to get a loan against the building, which which um, allows us to pull out. Uh, on somewhere between 80 and 100% of the capital employed in the project. We return that, that capital to investors via a debt finance distribution. And then we and the investors hold the building pretty much forever, mm-hmm. um, uh, collecting the rents and, uh, and then refinancing uh, again to return more capital as, as appropriate. 
Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. And uh, we're definitely going to get to more of that process uh, a little bit later coming up. But I wanted to start just to kind of paint a picture. So that's kind of who you are today. And that's kind of what you do now. But going back and reading through some of your old interviews, and even, you know, going through some of your tweets, because your tweets really do tell a story. And I think I think you do a great job in telling stories through Twitter, um, which not many people can do. I mean, I know, like, there's some good you know, one-liners and some cool, like, photos, but you you have a way of telling a story, which I think is unique. And one of your tweets, this is about entrepreneurship and being your own boss. Uh, you said, quote, being an employee was awful for my mental health. I swung wildly between feeling I was, one, adding value in excess of my salary and therefore being exploited, and two, being lazy, not worth my salary, and therefore stealing went off on my own 12 years ago, those feelings vanished. So talk to us a little bit about, you know, was this feeling of entrepreneurship always with you? Like even from your time as a kid, I know your parents had a couple properties. Did they did they try to motivate you at all to, to, to be your own boss or was this some innate feeling? No, no, no not at all. And in fact, uh, if you ask my parents, you know, uh, when I went to college, let's say what they thought, uh, I would be what I grew up. Uh, I, I bet they would have said like a history teacher or a professor or something. Um, they they were always they always did own some small uh, apartment buildings, but you know my father's a sculptor and he was an art professor for a long time, and my mom worked in New York State government. Um, so they were and on the side they always owned a few small apartment buildings, and they were like careful with their money and stuff, and they've done you know they've done done reasonably well um, by being frugal, but um, they were not. We had some entrepreneurial people earlier in my family uh, tree, but um, there was not, I, I wasn't like going door to door when I was a kid or anything like that. Um, I, what happened was um, I, I thought for, for most of my um, kind of late childhood slash adolescence, I, I kind of had in my mind that I was going to be a corporate lawyer. And I don't even know necessarily that I knew what that meant, but it was just kind of like, Oh, here's this job that I know gets paid a lot. You know, people get paid a lot of money. Right. You wear a suit and you work in New York City, and like that's how life is, and that's what you do if you're a smart, uh, uh, you know, English majory type person, um, and you're good with words, but you want to make money. So I just sort of had that in my head. And then, um, so my, so I, I went to college. I went to uh, to Princeton, and um, uh, my first year I joined a fraternity, and my grades were terrible. Uh, particularly when I towards the second half of the year, I mean, just not not reflective of who I was as a student, <laughs> right. um, and or maybe they were too accurately reflective of who I was as a student. <laughs> however, you want to think about it. Um, so, so and then I kind of got my act together once I got in the fraternity, uh, uh, and I had a pretty much straight A's, I think, after you know, from sophomore year on. Um, but so the way law school applications work is that if you want to go to law school immediately after. Uh, college, you got to apply uh, right at the beginning of your senior year. And um, so I realized that I would not be, that, that, that law schools would not see my second, my, excuse me, my senior year grades. And so they would be looking at these terrible grades from freshman year and then uh, good grades uh, for sophomore and junior, but they wouldn't see what I did senior year and that would handicap me from, from, a, uh, from an uh, application perspective. Hmm. So I was like, look, I got to burn a year basically. So uh, I got into London School of Economics to get what is kind of like a joke of a master's degree. Um, early in my career, I used to kind of, I would say, I went to London School of Economics and like 
was more or less silent about what the degree was in so that people would maybe think that it was like some kind of economics or business or whatever. Right. Uh, in real life, it was a history of international relations degree. <laughs> and to be honest, like for a long time after I finished the program, before they mailed my parents a letter, I was not even confident that I was necessarily going to be awarded the degree <laughs> because I was such a bad student. <laughs> um, so, but what happened was, so during that year uh, in London, I was living with one of my best friends from high school and he was working for this billionaire. And the billionaire's deal was he was buying up these small companies in Eastern Europe. And my friend was helping him. And my friend who was my age, I think we were like 24 or some 23, 24 at the time, um, uh, was, you know, he would make a deal. He'd fly to Lithuania, you know, shake hands with the owner of this little media company uh, uh, for, for Trader Media to buy it. And then Max, my, fr- my friend would sort of get back to London and he would call their lawyers. I think they were working with a firm in Boston, actually, for some reason. And they would call up the, you know, Max would call the partner who was uh, in charge of the trader business. And he'd like, he's like, look, I have an LOI and uh, I'm going to need a sale and purchase agreement uh, uh, by Monday morning. And this poor partner, you know, who's probably like 40 years old or 45, uh, who's probably desperate to like spend the weekend with his kids at his summer house is instead, <laughs> you know, basically spending the weekend sitting at a desk, banging out a sale and purchase agreement for Max. Right. And I was like, I, that, so being exposed to that element of corporate law, I was just like, that, that is not for me. <laughs> like, I, I do not want to be getting that phone call. That sounds like a terrible one. Right. right. Um, so uh, I, I still didn't know what I wanted to do. And I was sort of finishing up LSC. And Max set up an interview with me for um, uh, this this little investment bank that was doing all of that billionaires deals. Uh, so it was like a little M and A boutique um, called Longacre Partners, and they had never hired anyone with no experience before. Like they were just they didn't have a training program because they were so small. Yeah. But they Max introduced me, so Max is obviously working for their biggest client. They think Max is smart. Max is like, look, this is my best friend. He is not experienced, but he's a smart dude. And so they basically took a flyer on me and hired me as the only inexperienced person they'd ever hired. Wow. And um, so I basically got thrown in the deep end in media and, and technology mergers and acquisitions. And, and, and did, I, you, did, yeah, did you have any did you have any prior you know history or, or knowledge of that space or were you just kind of no. like a, okay. <laughs> No. And, and when I think back on the idiotic things that I said in particularly the earliest meetings that I was in, like, I really, I cringed thinking about it and I can't <laughs> believe how nice people were to me. Can you Let remember me an any example? Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 We were discussing, um, there was a, there was a French, um, advertising holding company called Havas. It's still around. And they were talking, I think at the time, I think, I can't remember if they were thinking about buying an English company or, or being bought by an English company. And I made the, what I thought was astute point that perhaps their motivation had to do with the exchange rates, which like anyone who is, I mean, it sounds reasonable, but like that's, I can assure you that that is not how, <laughs> how, how English and French people companies think about cross-border mergers and acquisitions like that is not 
that's like about 28th on the list of things that they consider when they're deciding whether to buy a company or not. <laughs> so, and, and to their credit, the people in the meeting kind of looked at me and then like went on with whatever they were talking about and didn't like laugh me out of the room or whatever. I guess that's maybe English politeness. Right. Um, but, but, uh, but what was cool about, so, and, and I didn't, and there's no training program. So, uh, I didn't, I, I read some corporate finance books and I tried to, you know, but mostly it was just on the job training. Like the guy who sat next to me, who's still a friend of mine, um, would like coach me through. And I didn't know, you know, we were building, I would, I would get tasked with building like a, like an LBO model, okay. you know, to determine what, you know, and I didn't know what an LBO was <laughs> <laughs> and I, I didn't know why one, someone would do an LBO and I didn't understand what leverage was, and you know, and so so I got this kind of fairly cursory on the job training with a lot of gaps. Um, so uh, it's fair to say that I was terrible at the uh, work that generally is expected of junior investment bankers. I mean, terrible. Okay. But I was paying attention at the time to the emergence of internet companies. This is like 2006, seven okay. and um, 2005, six, I guess. Um, and there had been the dot-com meltdown and particularly in the UK and in Europe, everyone at that point, everyone was just like, forget it. The internet's a joke. Like this is all a big waste of time. And everyone was focused on more traditional media. Um, but meanwhile, I'm like, I'm just, I didn't know any better, but I was just like watching like Google is, you know, being founded and then growing like crazy and, and going public. And, and you could kind of see and, and, and that, that the internet businesses came out of that nuclear winter and they were actually, they were incredibly amazing business models, hmm. right? Like generating very high margins and growing quickly and therefore yeah. being will, being able to pay high multiples for acquisitions and also when they themselves were acquired or when they went public, attracting very high multiples. And no one in the UK at that time was sort of looking at this. And so I kind of looked around and realized that there were these little internet companies in the UK, particularly, but also a little bit on mainland Europe, who everyone was ignoring because they were making, you know, 2 million pounds in profit, 3 million pounds in profit, like tiny, tiny little companies. But the margins were really good and the growth was good. And I'm like, hey guys, like there's actually, you know, this, it's fair to put a 15 multiple on these. Mm, yeah. And so suddenly what to everyone else looked like a crappy little, you know, 6 million pound, you know, enterprise value company really was a 30 million or a 45 million pound uh, enterprise value company, which was for the small bank that I was working at, like kind of interesting. Um, and so I started writing letters to uh, the CEOs of those companies and getting, there was one MD who kind of, was willing to tolerate my nonsense. And so I would write the letters under his name. And then when we would get the, you know, we would get responses and then he would, I would sort of make the pitch book and I would go with him to the meetings. And I got actually pretty good at BSing in these meetings. I mean, that's what investment banking is, is sort of convincing um, someone who is an absolute expert in their industry that you, some banker who's been reading about it for five minutes, actually knows <laughs> a lot about their business. But that's what it is. I mean, it, yeah. there's technical skills too, but it's really about developing trust. And a big part of that is like, yes, I know like what all, you know, yes, the cost per click in search advertising has really gone up lately. And 
you know, have you thought about lifetime value? Because like, you know, I, I kind of vaguely understood, I'm, I had a, a decent superficial understanding, nothing like what their actual understanding of operators were, exactly. like enough to be credible. Right. Um, and so we started getting hired to sell some of these companies and that was cool because, but it, it, I had the effect of kind of like, I went from being this idiot who didn't know how to do anything and therefore was effectively being overpaid. Right. Mm-hmm. Like I know I was getting a salary and a bonus and I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then, but then shortly thereafter, I was helping bring in deals that like were material to the revenue of the whole bank that I was at. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, I'm being dramatically underpaid. Like we, you know, we had 8 million pounds in revenue last year and I was crucially involved in bringing in five of those million pounds of revenue. Wow. And I just got a, you know, a 20 grand bonus or whatever the heck it was. That's almost like, <laughs> like the like, exact, a, yeah, it's yeah. almost, it's almost like the exact same story um, from Sam Zell. I just finished his book. Um, Am I being too huh. subtle? And it was, it was, it was yeah, the same thing. He had, he was working with a lawyer and he he didn't want to do law he wanted to do deals but the guy who ran the law firm cut a deal with sam basically saying you know hey you bring your deals in here and you get you know a cut of 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 all the deals Mm -hmm. that you bring in from your business and he did so many deals that he looked down and he's like i'm bringing in so much business for this law firm he's like if i just like did this myself kind of exactly like what you say he's like i'd just be making so much more money yeah, well, that was, so that was, uh, yeah, so that's, I mean, uh, comparing myself to Sam Zell is like blasphemous in a number of levels. So, like, I'm not <laughs> sure I'm willing to accept that comparison, but like, similar concept, except he's a titan of industry and I'm a nat. But, uh, you know, but thank you for comparing me. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> um, uh, but, but so, but so that was, that was where that tweet came from is like, I would, I, I kind of like was alternating between these sort of like extremes of feeling exploited and feeling like, uh, like I was stealing and, and, and the short, and this is a very long answer to your question, but basically once I went into business for myself, um, I, that feeling disappeared. And the reason is that when you're in business for yourself and I can't emphasize this enough, you are worth to the dollar, what you are getting paid. Like for better or worse, whatever you're making is what you're worth. And if you want to, if you want to make more, you need to be, you need to figure out how to be worth more to other people and that's it. Hmm. And so there's, it, it removes that sort of second order effect of like, how should I feel about how much other people are paying me? Right. It, it's, it's very clarifying. It's like, go be of value to other people and you will, you will get paid. Hmm. And it almost, you know, just, just to kind of go off on a, on a little bit of a tangent before I get into the next question, because you know, thinking about you just kind of jumping in into the deep end with, you know, no floating devices into this investment banking world or into this M&A world, do you think that that path ends up being more advantageous than someone that does a traditional MBA route and then to Goldman and then to, you know, some cookie cutter fund? Like, do you think there's value at the end of the day in being thrown into the deep end, even if you don't know anything and maybe you look foolish? I think that there is there are two career paths that work in real estate and gender specifically and maybe investment management more generally. Um, there's the there is you can you can kind of do the blue chip route, in which case you should go to the best you, know, you go to the best university you can, go to the best 
uh, brand, you know, best MBA program you can get, you know, get the best brand names on your resume and slowly sort of work yourself up until you can be sort of a partner at a really big institutional fund. Like that is a tried and true way to make a lot of money. Um, the other way is to be a hustler, like to, to figure out, and you don't need anyone's permission, except you just need to figure out how to make money for people. Right. Um, and, and if you do that consistently and well for a long period of time over, you know, you will maneuver yourself into an advantageous position by hustling. That is assuredly what I did. Um, and so I guess maybe you could say that my earliest experience in banking was a little bit of that hustling. Like yeah. I, like my mom had, I remember my, my, my uncle, I'm going to say something a little bit mean about my uncle who, who passed away. So I'm going to you know, forgive me for saying this. I love the guy very much. My uncle was not the sharpest guy in the world, he, mm-hmm. but he was a pretty successful lawyer. He had a little law firm. I was pretty successful. And he, but he was not a good lawyer. But what he was good at was people really liked him. Mm-hmm. He was like a, decent, warm, generous, kind human being who people right. trusted. And they want to do business with them. And you can hire smart people. You can always hire smart people to do the technical stuff if you are the kind of person who knows how to make the cash register. In other words, if you like fund if you can bring in business, that is extremely valuable. And mm-hmm. so um, my mom like had always said that to me like along the way, and so I guess maybe my behavior in investment banking was that me being like I don't know how to do an LBO model, I have no idea about a merger model or any of this other stuff, uh, but you know it seems like these guys need revenue. We get revenue by getting people to hire us to sell their companies. So let me go find some companies that we can get hired to sell. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so it's that that was hustling and. Uh, that same kind of thinking is obviously transferable to real estate and a whole bunch of other things. Yeah, and it's actually a perfect segue. So we're gonna we're gonna pivot into you know what you do now, which is real estate. But when you first started doing real estate deals, it didn't look exactly like what adaptive realty looks like today. Obviously, um, correct. You know how did you how did you get into you know your first couple deals? What did that look like? And and you know do you have any success or failure stories about 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 those first few <laughs> deals? Oh man, I got a million failure stories. Um, <laughs> so, so uh, I don't want to bore everyone. Let's see. The first, my brother and I were looking for a, a, a little a duplex to buy in Los Angeles in like 2007. Uh, and this is like before the market crash. Like I didn't even we didn't really know anything. It wasn't. We were just looking for a place to live in. It seemed like the next like natural stage of life was to like buy property. So we had the idea that we would buy a duplex and he would live in one half and I would live in the other. Hmm. And the market was inflated. And even with our, with our like extremely rudimentary understanding of the relationship at that point between rents and purchase prices, it was manifestly obvious that uh, the prices were stupid and like didn't make sense. Um, and so my brother stumbled across a guy who um, had bought a derelict 16-unit building and renovated it, um, but ran out of money right at the end. And so this guy was desperate to just get out of the deal. His construction loans, he had, he had his, he, his construction loans were in default, and so he was paying very high interest on the money and just like was desperate to get out. Right. And um, we with money, with help from our parents. It's, it's really worth, I, I really want to say like um, a lot of people, I always try to make clear that this is my original capital. 
uh, first came from my family and then from one of my best friends from high school. Hmm. That's so, awesome. You know, I don't, I, I want, but I want to be clear that like it, that was a privilege that wasn't like, I'm not, it's not like a bootstrap story. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I, I had a lot of help. Yeah. Um, so in this case, my, my great grandfather who had been a little bit in the real estate business in New York had died and, and they sold a bill, they sold his last building and the money came through my grandparents and then got to my mom. And then my mom, uh, helped us with the down payment for this 16 unit building. Cool. And, um, so we bought it, uh, uh, we finished the, the renovation, we leased it up. We learned a ton. I mean, we were like, we made, you know, I, I'll give you an example. You asked for a failure. Um, we had 16 empty units and a mortgage payment to make. So, uh, there was this, <laughs> that sounds um, like a nightmare. <laughs> yeah. So there was this, um, uh, there is, it's still there, uh, a home for, uh, uh, pregnant teenagers across the street from the building and the women age out of the program. Um, and they didn't have anywhere to go. And so we approached the program and we were like, Hey guys, like, do you have any need for housing for these people? And they were, and we, they put together, we put together a deal where they leased, I think eight of the units, um, for these, uh, teenage mothers who had aged out of their, their home, hmm. uh, to move in. Now, it, uh, uh, teenage mothers attract, uh, uh, certain, certain element that maybe is not like conducive to running like a calm, peaceful building. Right. Uh, (laughs) To put it lightly. To put it lightly. So we had like eight kind of standard tenants, uh, in the other eight units. And we had these eight, these eight women who were very nice, but who like, there were a lot of, a lot of boys hanging around that building who didn't live there. And, um, it was, so we ended up, I mean, that was like, that's one very small example of the kind. We also rented a unit to a woman. It turned out her boyfriend was a pimp and he was, uh, uh, having his other, other, you know, his employees entertain clients in one of the units. I mean, it was, you know, it's like, we did all kinds of stupid stuff. Um, but we learned and then the market fell apart mm-hmm. and, um, we, so the, so that was the first deal. So the market fell apart, but we hadn't, um, we, we had done a sort of a decent deal. It wasn't a great deal, but it was decent and we didn't over lever. So when the market collapsed, uh, we, it cash flow got tight, but we were never in danger of losing the building. And okay. so, um, so, so we, but meanwhile, the, the real estate in Los Angeles goes on sale. Now I'm talking about like 2009. Okay. Yep. And, um, I had met this guy before he was actually the head of the management company that the bank had forced us to hire for our first building. And he was, um, he kind of introduced us to the idea of buying really cheap buildings and fixing them up. Um, he wasn't the world's most wonderful human being to put it mildly, but he was, uh, <laughs> but, he, but he was shrewd. Yeah. And when, and then the market fell apart and he came to me with a deal knowing that, you know, we had already bought one, you know, he brings me this deal off market and he's like, look, this guy's it's a building in Silver Lake, which is a neighborhood we liked. Mm-hmm. And he's like, you know, quotes me a price and I look at the numbers and I don't, you know, I don't really know anything about anything at that point. But I'm like, you know, he, I think he was asking, he was asking one, four, five. And I come back to him, I'm like, one, two, five. This is for a 16 unit building in Silver Lake. And, and he's, and to my utter shock, he said, yes. Hmm. Now, was that, was that, was that because of the uh, currency exchange rates with Canada? (laughs) (laughs) He was, 
honestly, I have like the most naive model. Like I, I, I probably could find it somewhere. Like it, it would be funny <laughs> to look at what, what I was like estimating for cost and renovation and all. That, that would like, be fun to put out on a blog post too, just to have people <laughs> see like your original models. That'd be really cool. Oh yeah. It was, it was, it was crude to, to, to say the least. Um, so, so, but, and I wasn't even expecting the guy to say yes. I just sort of like, I was like, I don't really know. So let me price this so cheap that mm. like it would be hard to lose money, but the guy's going to say no. Yeah, and to yeah. my surprise, he said yes. And then I had to go find the money because I didn't have it. Okay. Um, <laughs> so uh, it turned out that one of my best friends from, from high school had, uh, had around this time kind of like made a fortune running a hedge fund. Okay. And... The problem, he was super liquid, but the problem was that at this time the banks were all failing. I don't know if you recall in 2009, 10, like you couldn't be sure that you could put large amounts of money with any financial institution and not have it disappear. Right. There's just no trust um, in the system at that point. Yeah. I mean, and this isn't like, you know, obviously 250K in an FDIC insured account, whatever, like not a big deal. But yeah. like if you were trying to put like 20 million somewhere, like where do you put it? Hmm. Right. Right. Um, Lehman Brothers had gone under, and you know, you, I mean, Merrill had been sold, and you know, Countrywide, and you name it, these things were going under. AIG. So, and and I don't know if you remember this as well, but everyone at that point, the government starts printing money, right? That was the response. Yep. And everyone at that time was assuming that there would be massive inflation, right? That was that was kind of the, the textbook economics response to. To, to massive uh, money printing was was inflation. And so my friend was like, look, I don't know where to put this money, but the textbook response, if you anticipate uh, uh, high inflation, is is hard assets, right? Like you might as well just own some stuff and then have the price go up along with the, you know, as the, as the, the, the value of the currency goes down. Right. So he, despite me having basically no or very little experience, he uh, decided to back me in buying this building um, with the only caveat being that he couldn't use any leverage. Like the idea was he would give us the cash to buy and renovate the building. Um, and his thinking was, I think that because there was no debt on it, like what's, what's the worst thing that could happen, right? Like we couldn't, no one's going to take the building away. It's a very, see, um, see yeah, it's, it's, and, and, and this is why I love it. Cause like, this is just such, it's such a page out of like a deep value investors approach in public markets. Like if you have a really clean balance sheet, it's like, what's the worst, you know, it's hard for public companies to go yeah. bankrupt with no debt. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. So he's just like, look, these guys don't know. And it was, at this point, it was my brother and I doing deals together. And he's just like, look, like, you know, how badly could these guys screw it up? Now, I should say that we made, we tried valiantly to screw it up. <laughs> Despite the lack of, <laughs> of, uh, of, of leverage, we did our level best to, to try and ruin that deal. And, um, but, but what happened was um, we, so, so we made all kinds of mistakes. I mean, we were, we were paying people in cash. We were, uh, not using terms. like we just did all kinds of dumb stuff. Hmm. But um, the 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 fundamental idea, which was that you could take a unit in this building and turn it over and like fit, you know make it really nice and charge high rents for it because the neighborhood was cool, notwithstanding the fact that we were in a recession. Fundamentally, that proved out. Yeah. So like we renovated the first couple of units. And we rented them up. And now when we renovate, we renovate the whole building. But um, back then, it, you know, this is the first one. We did it unit by unit. And so the benefit was we didn't have to wait for the whole thing to be finished. Hmm. 
Like yeah. we once we turned over a couple of units and we showed that we could get the rents that we were sort of forecasting. He's like, okay, this is working. So then he was willing to back us to buy more building. And at the time, it was like there was just everything was on sale. Like it yep. was when I look back, I mean, I want to cry that I didn't buy more because it mm-hmm. was just in retrospect. I mean, we were you know, we were buying buildings for like I mean, way lost less than they cost to build. You know, wow. just 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 stupidly cheap. Yeah. Um, and so uh, so we were so we bought about we bought with him I think eleven deals. Um, and uh, this again, I was in partnership with my brother. And then fast forward to like 2011, 12, he basically is like, okay, guys, like, uh, we got to liquidate all this stuff. <laughs> Sounds like a and, major, major stop sign to your whole operation. Yeah, yeah. Well, so it was really weird because on the one hand, so, so first of all, he was in the money, right? And he's like, look, I staked you guys. Um, there hasn't been massive inflation. I mean, things are, you know, there's been some or whatever, or like you, you've done, you've done well, like we've made some money and it's, but like the economy's, you know, uh, improving and I don't, I'm not going to be your sole source of capital for the rest of your careers. Hmm. Like what, what he allowed us to do is because we were able to buy quickly, like 11 buildings in like a couple of years. Wow. We, it was like going to graduate school Yeah. in like, on someone else's dime and we made some money, but not a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, but we were, we just got to experiment with so many different things and make mistakes and learn and meet contractors and material suppliers, and architects. And like, we really like just learned the business on his dime. Um, the one area that we did not have to kind of build was capital raising, right? Cause he was just backing us for everything. Yeah. And so, 2011 2012 he basically forces us to liquidate the portfolio um and uh at that point my brother and i were kind of sick of doing business together i love my brother we're really close but we should not be in business together <laughs> that's um, funny because as someone so, as someone yeah. as someone with a brother um he's he's trying to start his own you know he's he's a senior in college right now and he's big into fitness and all that stuff and he's trying to develop yep. his own thing and and uh, you know, a part of me would like love to get in and kind of help him any way I can. But then another part of me is like, man, I remember those days when we <laughs> when we would literally yeah. have fist fights <laughs> when we were younger. Yep. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. And we had you sound like you have more of an age uh, difference with him. Like with me, my brother and I are eighteen months apart, and so okay, yes, yeah, so there's four, not it's four much more. Like, it's almost like we're twins. Yep. Okay. And so, it, I mean, like, there's no, there's not like a natural hierarchy between the two of us. We're both like pretty alpha and we were both butting heads all the time. It was, mm. it was kind of unpleasant. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so anyway, so my friend forces liquidity, we, we sell out all these buildings. Um, we kept the original one we owned with her family. Okay. Still own that one. Um, and I'm at that point, this is like 2011, 12. I'm a little bit at loose ends and I've got, it's a very weird situation. It feels like I've like, in some sense, I've done something very stupid, which is that I wasted like the best buying opportunity in history, right? I've done, right. I bought all these buildings. I could have, at that we, we, if he had been willing to let us, we could have refinanced and just held them, but he was like insistent on getting out entirely. So we had to sell, and in retrospect, it's super painful because we would have made a lot of money if we had just yeah. held on, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, just enormous amounts of money if we'd held on. <laughs> um, but, uh, but, but in any case, so we're, I'm kind of at loose ends. Um, but I've got, and I've got, I'm married at that point and my first son was born in 2011 and 
we sell everything out and we've got, I've got a little bit of money, but not a ton. I've got this, I've got, at that point, I've got a real estate broker's license and I really know about buying and renovating buildings. And I've got an employee, this guy, John, who had been working for us, who had got his contractor's license and really knew about renovating buildings. Right. But we don't have any capital and we, uh, and, and we don't have a business or anything. We're just, you know, a couple of guys. Uh, and so we, uh, decide, so, so, so we got to make money. Yeah. And so we do a couple things. Um, well, that's when we incorporated adaptive and the associated entities. Um, and, uh, we just start scratching and clawing to try to make a living and build a business. And so you say scratching and clawing, um, you know, you've, you've talked about, uh, you know, the fundraising process and kind of, you know, you, you had a had a graduate degree really or a master's degree almost in you know buying buildings renovating and then renting them out but like you said when it came to raising capital you you know you were you were still very much green because you didn't necessarily have that experience um yeah. how 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 was that initial fundraising process like um was it was it yeah. easier than 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 you would have thought because you know you've had some previous no. success with this other investor or was it just as hard no it was terrible um so so Let's see. What did I do? Um, the first thing I did was I I interviewed some lawyers and I found a guy who um, was kind of towards the end of his career. This guy Howard Hart, who he's now retired, nice guy. I actually just saw him in Paris uh, earlier this year um, or late last year. Um, and he uh, he was he had done some work with some private uh, real estate private equity firms before, and so he kind of knew how to structure funds, and he was pretty inexpensive. Um, we uh, I had interviewed some other people too, and they were many multiples of what he wanted to charge. So we hired him. We uh, uh, made a set of docs. Um, we I made a list of all of the rich people I knew, you know, from uh, from college, from prep school, from um, I, you know, limited to a limited extent from people in, in England. Although it's very hard to, we didn't end up raising any money from my professional contacts back in England. Um, and uh, I just went around and started emailing and calling people. Um, we we got to about 1.8 million in, um, in including 500k from my friend who had backed us for those first that first set of deals. Yeah. So that's like he he did that kind of as like a like a signal like so that people would know that he believed in us even though oh, okay. he wasn't continuing to you know so right he, right right. So, but I mean, if you know real estate, like $1.8 million in Los Angeles buys you approximately nothing. Well, that's exactly what was uh, my, that was, yeah. that was yeah, like, yeah. like, like you, uh, you read my mind. Cause I was going to say, well, for 1.8, yeah. I mean, you could maybe get a shed in a backyard. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, I mean, now that's really the case. Even back then stuff was, that was not a lot of money. So, um, but we got lucky, uh, in that, um, uh, the CPA who he had, we had been using, um, I called him up and I was like, Hey, do you have any clients that, you know, that, 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 that might be interested in investing? And he's like, well, I know this family. And I went over to meet the, the kind of, um, senior outside family member, like not, sorry, non-family member in this mm-hmm. sort of family office. And I didn't even really understand what a family office was to be completely honest at this point. And yeah. I certainly did not know how wealthy these people were. Uh, hmm. I didn't really, I didn't have, he didn't, he didn't give me a lot of background before the meeting. Got it. And I go in there and I explain our business model. 
And uh, the guy who I met with was like, look, if you want a couple hundred thousand dollars, I'll write you a check right here without even reading the docs. Like, you seem like a nice guy. Uh, but if you want a material amount of money, uh, we're going to have to negotiate the docs. And I'm like, oh, what's material? And he's like, well, we'll match what you raise from everyone else. Mm, so that's not bad. And yeah. So I'm like, okay, like that's material. <laughs> um, <laughs> we, we, uh, we, we negotiate and they didn't, um, they didn't want to mess with us on the economics. Uh, instead they just wanted some control rights. Like they okay. wanted the ability to veto deals and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, so we, you know, we, I went back to all the other investors and I'm like, Hey, like there's this big family, they're going to come in. And in, in retrospect, what I should have done, honestly, at that point, I should have leaned on everyone. Right. Hmm. I should have been like the move when you get, when, when you have like a huge family office that comes in and is like, we're going to take half the fund and we are going to be, we're going to exercise control rights. The move then is to go wave in capital from everyone else. Be like, right. Hey guys, do you want to like co-invest alongside this <laughs> gigantic family office that knows a ton about real estate and they yeah, yeah. oversee the whole thing. And like, like that's like a no brainer, right? Every, mm. all of those people should have written much larger checks. And it turns out in fact that, so that was adapted realty fund one. We knocked the cover off the ball nice. on that fund. Nice. Uh, you know, it was still, it was still a good buying opportunity. I thought that the buying opportunity was kind of over by that point. Yeah. Um, but, tw- but it wasn't, I mean, 2012, 2013, those were great years to buy. And so we, and we didn't, you know, we, we, we did incredibly, it was a small fund, but we did four deals. Um, we actually sold those cause we wanted to print a track record. We didn't yeah. kind of hadn't figured out the permanent hold thing yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but we sold it and we didn't use leverage. And I think it was like 26% IRR over a couple Damn. of years, no leverage. Not bad. Like, right. So like, <laughs> that's, yeah, not that's bad. like, I mean, that's right on a risk. Adjust, I mean, it's, no it's, leverage it's too. Like utterly no leverage. Yeah, twenty six, and that's net of like net of fees, net of promote, like twenty six wow. or something. With it was just stupidly good, and the deals were so good. Like I remember distinctly the uh, uh, getting the first deal in contract, mm-hmm. and it was a fourplex in Echo Park, and I think we were in contract with five hundred, and we did our inspection, and like I went back, and and it, and it, it was already too cheap. Like it was it was already obvious that it was too cheap. And, but I went back and what and, like, well, and what, and what made it back. obvious? What what made it well, obvious to you? Because it was it was extre- there were already like a renovated building. You could already in Echo Park even then probably sell for a million. Okay, maybe even a bit more. Uh, and I was buying this thing for five hundred, and you could just see that it wasn't going to cost that. I mean, it was going to cost a lot of money to fix it, but it wasn't going to cost like five six hundred grand. So you could mm. tell. That there was going to be that there it was it was it was going to be profitable. Yep. Um, and then I go to the lady and I'm like, I, I go to the broker and I'm like, well, we are inspections and blah blah blah. It's in bad shape. We're still on it. And she <laughs> she sort of like preemptively is like, oh well, I talked to the owner about that already, and she'll, they'll do four fifty. Wow. I'm like, so I got a fifty k you know t- like a fifty k price reduction without I didn't even ask. Like she preemptively, and I was wow. like, okay. And I remember agreeing. I, I can literally remember where I was standing in my crappy apartment at that point. And I was like, this is going to be a very good deal. Nice. And by the time I think we sold that building for a million five. Um, and it, you know, it, it was, I think it was, it was a better than 50% net ROI in like 18 months or something like that. And like wow. no leverage. It was just like a stupid thing. Yeah. That's, that's um, incredible. So yeah, so it was it was just it was just really good, um, uh, and we collected a bunch of rent in the interim. It was, it was a great deal. Um, so so anyway, that was so that was fun one, and then but 
and, and, and we went on to do more stuff, but uh, in terms of raising more funds, but the problem when you're running, and this I think will be relevant to you and to your listeners, it's very, very hard to run a subscale uh, asset management platform. Hmm. Like, even if you charge real estate and private equity, you can charge big fees. Like we were charging an asset management fee and an acquisition fee and a construction management fee and a loan wow. fee and a property management fee. We get all the fees out the wazoo. And that's okay. all normal, and, right? In that in that industry, like all those fees are normal. Yeah, I mean that that vehicle was particularly fee heavy, but like people were kind of understanding about it because the real dollars involved were so small. It was just like, look, it's a, it was a $3.6 million fund or something like that. Like, what do you, you know, okay, 1% Axie, like, what are you actually putting in your pocket? I mean, and also if you're returning um, 26% net IRR, people can't be too upset. <laughs> they can't be too upset Well, they didn't, that. yeah, although to be fair, they didn't know up front. Like, I mean, they were, they believed that, um, you know, they, 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 they believed in me, but I don't, I don't think I was promising anything like that. I mean, yeah, it, it happened course. to work out really yeah, well. Um, uh, so, so. Then I guess what happened is that we the scale of the opportunity there was much larger than we could raise money for. So like we just couldn't I just couldn't like I saw these buildings all around me that we could do our thing to, but I just couldn't raise like fifty million dollars. I just didn't I just did my best and I raised three and a half, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um so what we did is we had these guys who had bought they had offered on one of the buildings that we sold in that initial batch with my buddy and they'd offered on it, but they didn't, um, they didn't win the auction. So we didn't sell it to them, but I had been writing a blog. Okay. And this guy joins the mailing list on the blog and I get an email from, Oh, you know, this, this guy joined on the mailing list. And I look, I'm like, that name sounds familiar. And I look him up and I realize that he has bid on the building and not won it, but like he, you know, so then I, I emailed him and I'm like, look, um, you know, you, you know, here's who I am. You, you join the mailing list. Like, let's have lunch. Yeah. And we have lunch. I'll, I'll never forget this one. I was in Beverly Hills. He had uh, one of his employees with him. Um, and I sort of sat there and I explained the business model to him. And he was like, that sounds really interesting. Um, uh, what I'd like to do, we kind of had a, we took him on a tour of some properties, like kind of explain more about the model. And he's like, listen, Here's what I want to do. I want I want you to do a deal for uh, my partner and me with our own money, mm-hmm. and uh, and so they put up. We found them a little deal in Echo Park, like five units. We um, they paid us a flat fee. I can't remember what it was. Maybe it was a hundred grand or something like that. Yeah. To oversee the entire project, like from okay. start to finish, acquisition, uh, uh, construction, basically the whole thing, and then yeah. um, and then to take over and then to manage it afterwards. Like we got a management fee after that. Um, and we didn't, but we didn't get any ownership. Hmm. Like it's, it's basically like a fee development business. It was just like, we got paid a flat fee for being smart and doing the work, but like no ownership. Right. The deal goes well. In fact, we still manage that building today for that. Okay. Um, yeah. So this is almost the they, dawn of your property management business then. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, um, uh, uh, and then they, unbeknownst to us, they, these guys were like serious, real estate developers. They had like approximately a $70 million fund that they had raised um, to do creative office deals, like buying Mm -hmm. industrial buildings and fixing them up as offices. Yeah. Um, And they, they kind of like, didn't like, even though in retrospect, that was a good buying opportunity. They, the numbers were not, did not look good to them. in like 2000, this is 2013, 
2014 that that era like they just didn't the numbers didn't look appealing and but they really liked the numbers in our business and uh uh and particularly then once we showed them they, they put them they put their own money up for the first deal and we we did great and then so then they they basically I didn't really understand what was going on at the time, but I, I subsequently learned what they did is they went to their investors and and basically repurposed the the creative office fund for multifamily, and they proceeded to have us put out that entire fund for them. Wow. Okay. So while we were and I didn't really know it wasn't like it was never like we have this set amount of money we're gonna put out. It was more like I would pitch them a deal and they were like, okay, let's do it. And then I'd pitch them another deal and like, let's do it, let's do it, let's do it. And we just like, it just like never stopped. We just, I, I think we ended up renovating like 20 buildings for them or 25 buildings for them. Wow. And what that did was it, we got these fees and in retrospect, we were kind of being underpaid. Like we mm -hmm. generated many, many, many multiples for them of, uh, uh, in terms of value relative to what they were paying us. Yeah. Almost but, goes back to that old problem when you were working... Yep. with the employer yeah no and it did it sometimes it, like in it yeah it did exactly it did feel not great in that regard but what it did was the fees from that allowed us to live while we were um raising money the money that we could raise for our own deals yeah. so it, it like oh it sort of like bridged us um from being tiny uh, until we could stand on our own two feet. And those buildings, we still manage all of them, and they became the core of our property management business. Now, um, it, uh, for a very long time, they were by far our largest client in our property management business. Mm -hmm. uh, now, the stuff that we own is, is, is more important to the property management than, I mean, they're still our biggest third-party client, but we are our own best client, if that makes sense. But, it, but so th it was... They bridged us in the cash and the deals, and then also in terms of the management fees to be able to build a management company. And it's crazy that all of this started off as you know because you started a blog, which is which is so it's very Michael Burry esque, right? Because if you look at his story, he was on MSN Money Boards, and Joel Greenblatt found his way to his posts, and eventually Gotham Funds seeded Scion Capital, which is Michael Burry's fund. And you know why did you 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 made a reference, I don't know if it was in a podcast or just in one of your blog posts about, you know, instead of cold calling, which is what you would normally do once you get your broker's license and you start cold calling, try to get business, you started the blog. So why did you, why did you try to, or why did you start writing online as opposed to cold calling? Like what was, what was the motivation? Laziness. <laughs> Laziness. You want to make a hundred cold calls every day. Are you kidding me? It's like a nightmare. <laughs> um, uh, I had... So remember that I had sold those tech companies, like I'd been involved in that. Yeah. So I kind of had an, I, I knew a bit about the, the specifically the leap gen business, like okay. the, um, which is for, your, for people who don't know, it's like the business of you, there's a, there's sort of a middleman business where you go around and you, uh, accumulate, you, you kind of get traffic on the internet and then you sort of direct it to merchants who then pay you for each lead that you give them. Okay. Um, so I kind of knew that there was, and one of the best ways to do that is called content marketing, which is like, I'm, again, I'm not telling you, you don't know, this, this podcast mm -hmm. is a form of content marketing for you and me and everyone else. Um, yeah. uh, but, but so, um, so at that point, this, there were no, it wasn't a podcast game. It was, and Twitter was probably too, too early in its development to serve this purpose either. 
but blogs you could write and people would use google and find your writing and then if you created a mailing list you could get their email addresses and i kind of like knew that and so i read i kind of thought huh let me see if i can do a blog and i read there's a there's a bunch of blogs that are about blogging it's very meta um (laughs) they and they had they all if you read them all at the time they they all had like six things that you should do to set up to become a real professional blogger right yeah um and i i don't remember all six of them but these and the reason i don't remember all of them is because i only did like three of the six things you're supposed to do and they just doing the three of those things worked. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's it was, not bad. it was like that's why they were all saying the same things because right. they were right like that was the right thing to do um and so and then i started, so I started blogging and then another smart thing that i did was i read um what's her name ah oh, I'm going to blank on her name. She's one of the sharks on Shark Tank. She, Barbara Corcoran, the real yep. estate agent, yep. real estate broker. Okay. So I, re, I read a lot of business biographies. And Barbara Corcoran wrote her, her biography when she was building her brokerage business. Okay. Um, she realized she wanted to get publicity. And that this is before the internet. But she realized that um, the real estate uh, reporters at the New York Times were desperate for market data, okay? Like, it's just like a great article to be able to write. As a reporter, price yeah. is up 5%, price is down 12%. Yeah. Um, and no one had that data in New York at the time, so Barbara Corcoran basically, like, faked it. She was like, she had, like, you know, she sold, sold two apartments the last year, and she would, you know, and they were, and then she would, like, be like, oh, sales up. <laughs> you know what I mean? Based <laughs> on the two sales that she had done. It's, like, total nonsense. Right. But, you know, she printed it up on nice letterhead and distributed it. And lo and behold, like the New York Times wrote an article about Barbara Cork and the expert in apartments saying the prices have gone up and suddenly she starts getting business. So I read that and I'm like, you know, there are these real estate blogs and they don't, they, I bet they would have the same thirst for data. And so I basically did a project where I looked up, um, uh, apartment rents on Craigslist for each neighborhood that we were interested in. And I literally like manually copied down, okay, this one bedroom is 1600, this one's 1650, like whatever. Made a list, yeah. got some median data, like, you know, median, most expensive, least expensive, like whatever, just basic stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and then offered it to the real estate websites in exchange for links. And lo and behold, they printed it. They linked back to my website. People started coming to my website. Google started noticing the links and putting my my site up higher in the rankings. And I had a mailing list thing on the website, and people started joining the mailing list. And then people started reaching out to me and asking me for help buying apartments, apartment buildings, there you go. and also to invest in my deals. That's just like one giant snowball effect after another. That's awesome. Well, it was just trying to trying to be smart and like yeah. uh, like at this time we i'm telling you like you know my family had some dose i was never going to starve right but yeah i didn't want to ask them for it i mean i did actually in fact i think at that point, point they maybe helped me i think they were paying maybe my kids health insurance or something okay. i mean it was not good yeah. <laughs> like i was really broke it put a ton of strain on my marriage um we you know we it was just a it was a it was a really rough time so like i just needed to do whatever whatever i could to earn a living yeah um but once but yeah so that i we built a brokerage i hired three or four agents and trained them to help people buy apartment buildings so people would 
join my mailing list, ask me to help them buy a building, and then I would direct them to one of my agents. My agents would sell them the building, and we would take a cut of the commission that the agent earned. Okay. Um, so then we're and then some of those people hired us to do property management. So we were building our property management, and then we were kept we kept you know doing those fee deals, and then slowly but surely, we grew the asset base that the, the group of investors who were, who were you know backing us to actually go do our own deals. And over time, um, the as we sort of proved that we were good, more we, we had access to more and more capital. Yep. We we sort of like we stopped doing the fee deals. We we got rid of the brokerage because too much information was kind of leaking. We weren't making enough money to justify the hassle on how much information was leaking to our competitors. Um, and uh, and just really focused on the you know buy you know organizing groups of people to buy apartment buildings and own them forever, which is what we do for the most part. And then as an ancillary business, the the the, the property management that we still do today. Yeah, and it's it's you know I want to I want to spend some time. I actually kind of want to spend the last last part of this podcast really just diving into your you know investment processes is is the way I want to focus on it just you know what you look for in a building and kind of why yep. you why why you find this but but before doing that I loved this um I love this quote you had you had this um you know little post kind of this game theory idea um and I'm going to I'm going to read the quote cuz I think it's great and I think I think listeners are going to really enjoy this and it's this is about you know just your emphasis on long-term partners and relationships because a lot of the conversation that we've had, one thread that you can pull at is this is a business of relationships. And if you didn't have relationships and if you didn't have good relationships with certain people, you know, you might not be, you know, here today talking about adaptive realty or, you know, the success that you've had. And so, you know, with that backdrop, you kind of wrote this game theory idea and you said you're playing a multi-iteration game. In that game, it's not trying to screw over the other guys so you win. It's like, how do we figure out how to make sure that we both win? We're going to keep doing this over and over. We could do better by collaborating. That's what it comes down to. Think about those people who trust you with capital. Capital is precious in a world where income is a tax for your highest earners. And I just yeah, love so, that. Yeah, well, look, so first of all, there's a couple ideas in there. One is... Um, uh, real estate development depends on capital, and there's some you can get bank debt. That's bank debt's kind of an easy thing to get, but you so, but you really need equity. Equity is like the thing that's the risk capital that makes the whole business go. Yeah. Okay. Uh, if you ever want to be anything besides just a small time player, you're going to need to learn how to use other people's equity. You're going to have to get them to trust you. And the first thing to say is that you need to appreciate how precious that capital is. It wasn't really driven home to me until I started earning like real amounts, real income, and having to pay like really eye-wateringly large checks to the government. <laughs> like it was, and like you're like you you know you earn whatever you earn, and then you pay the state and the and the, and the IRS like half of that. Well, especially in California, gotta, my gosh. Oh yeah, it's it's a nightmare. And then and by the way, then you have to uh, uh, pay for your rent or your mortgage and your kid's school and food and all that stuff, and then. Once you've got all that taken care of, you can save money. <laughs> like okay? now, I have like, ten dollars. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It is really hard to build up capital. Yeah. Okay. And so you have as a as as a user of capital, 
which is what you are in the asset management business and the real estate business or, or in the hedge fund business or any other uh, investment management business, as a, you have to understand how precious that capital is. Like someone bled for that, yeah. right? And yep. so like step one is sort of acknowledging that you, you need other people's capital and that capital is extremely precious, right? And so you need to act in ways that first and foremost, preserve the, like, like sort of honor the fact that people are trusting you with something really precious and not screw it up. Now, it doesn't mean that you, like everyone's going to make mistakes. You're going to, it's just the nature of business is messy. Life is messy. Like things go wrong. You can't like, it, it's not, no one is expecting perfection from you, but they're expecting honesty. They're expecting your absolute best efforts. And honestly, they're expecting results, right? Yeah. Like you, you can get, you can do okay. Like being a nice guy and giving your best and being honest. But like, if you don't generate returns at a certain point, you're out of business too. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so, but, but the right way to structure that is not because you, you, you do a deal and then you want to do another deal and then you want to do another deal after that. You want to do it like you, you can't. So if, if you're constant, if you're screwing people over, if you're playing one iteration games and you're like trying to, to get, get one over on your investors, then you burned your investors. If you want to do another deal, you got to go find a whole bunch of other investors. And eventually, by the way, your reputation catches up with you and you're out of business. Right. 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 And, um, and maybe this was driven home to me by like having, you know, sort of like my friend funding a whole bunch of deals and then not, and me having to like start back from zero again, that's kind of like an object lesson in how, uh, uh, valuable those capital relationships are hmm. like, that is the, that's fundamentally the most, that is the, that's the permission as an investment manager. Yep. So, um, so, so anyway, so you don't want to play one iteration games. You want those people to. To, to do a deal with you and then roll to the next deal and roll the next deal after that and one after that. And over time, you're going to make, all, you get very well compensated. It's a great business if you do well for your partners. But that's the crucial part. You have to do well for your partners. Yeah. And you got to do that over and over and over and over. Yeah. So now part of part of you doing well for your partners is is finding these great deals. And in essence, you know, when I when I looked at your strategy, it just screamed to me, deep value real estate investor. Um you know, and it's it's kind of funny because you know when I when I think of like real estate investing in Los Angeles, it's like does deep value really apply in an area like Los Angeles? But that's just my naivety to the real estate market. Um, but tell tell the listeners just kind of what your strategy is in a nutshell. Yeah, so it's very 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 simple, and it's actually anyone who's familiar. I, it's only you can see how how kind of naive I am about investments. It's only I read Cable Cowboy, the John Malone book, maybe like four years ago, five years ago. Yeah. And I kind of was like, hey, this thing sounds like what we do. But it was only after um, reading uh, what's the the Outliers? Do you read the book The Outliers? Oh yeah. That's it. That yeah, like I mean, that's like an absolute Will Thorne book, like an absolute classic. And and there's kind of a John Malone uh, chapter in there. It was only after reading that, like maybe two years ago, that I was like, oh. What we do is exactly like what John Malone is. Yeah. Um, and, and so this is what we do. We are, under, everyone else, when they're buying a real estate deal, they're underwriting to IRR, like uh, internal rate of return. They're thinking, I'm going to use as much debt as I can. I'm going to flip the building quickly, and I'm going to focus on the IRR, like get the investors in and out and, and, and print a high IRR so I get my promote and I move on to the next deal. That is not us for various reasons. Like I like compounding. I don't like taxes. Um, 
uh, and when you own very well located renovated buildings in Los Angeles, it strikes me as insane to sell them. Yeah. Um, so uh, you want natural compounding, like that's the whole point of this stuff, not trading in and out of it and vaporizing value. Um, so what we do is we focus almost exclusively on the pro forma unlevered yield. In other words, forgetting about debt, assuming that we're going to do the project all cash, what is the uh, cash flow that we can expect every year once the building is stabilized? So just to, to, to make sure it's clear, uh, the equation is uh, in the numerator, it's annual rents minus annual operating expenses. So that, that's, your, that's your cash flow every year. And in your denominator, it's what is the cost of buying the building plus the cost of uh, rehabbing it plus the cost of carrying it for during the rehab plus whatever fees you're going to charge. Right. Okay. All right. So that's your total, total capitalization at the bottom. Um, and that spits out a number, which is, you know, expressed in a percent is like your, your unlevered yield. And um, it's sort of akin to a cap rate in real estate. It's like, if you, if you just want to go buy a building right now, you've got 5 million bucks, you want to buy a building. Yeah. And you don't use debt, you can buy a five cap. That means you can buy a building that generates that, that for your five million dollars um, will will pay you. You buy the building for five million dollars, and it, you can expect roughly that it will pay you two hundred fifty k. Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. So that's cap rate. That's five. Okay. So what we do instead of going and buying that five cap, we go find some real beat up building that we have to do a ton of work to. I mean, like this take like a full gut renovation, like new plumbing and windows and roof and electric and you name it. Okay. Like mm -hmm. massive, like this is not lipstick on a pig. This is like the <laughs> other thing. Um, right. And then when we're done, we, the unlevered yield will be like in the range of seven, let's say. Okay. And the difference between five and seven doesn't sound that big. Right. But it is game changing. Oh yeah. For compounding mm -hmm. purposes. Yeah, and, and, and even more than that, like if you make a seven in a five market, what you do is you just go back to your bank after you're done mm -hmm. and you say, hey, here's my cash flow. What is this thing worth? Mm. And the bank divides it by 0.05 or 0.0475 or whatever they think the market cap rate is. And the effect is that you value, your building is worth considerably more than what you put into it. Right, right, right. Got it. Okay, like, so you're into it for a million and maybe it's worth a million four. Got it. Okay, and so then the bank, being a conservative bank, they'll say, well, you know, I, I, don't, I don't loan people 100% of the value. I need to have a cushion. So you've got a million four building. I'll make you a mortgage of a million bucks on it. Yep. And you say, thanks, Mr. Banker. Take your million bucks. <laughs> that sounds pretty good. You, yeah, it sounds great. <laughs> And by the way, that loan is going to be a 30-year AM loan with like a seven-year fixed rate period, and it's going to be priced at like, you know, 4% a year. Yep. Okay. So so your unlevered yield is seven, and you're going to borrow out all the capital or close to it. You're going to return that to your investors, and you're going to be earning, uh, you know, you'll, you'll be, your building pays the mortgage, and then there's additionally cash flow over the mortgage, which you can also distribute. Right, so right. depending exactly on how the numbers work out, like in kind of a bad scenario, maybe you only get 80% of the money out and maybe you're getting like a high single digit or something like that, uh, a levered yield on what remains on the 20% that remains. Um, but, okay. 
plenty of times we've hit the ball out of the park and we've got them to give us 100%. Actually, in one case, we got them to give us 110% of the capital employed. Now, why 110%? Because this is, is going to be a stupid question for me, I'm sure, but why 110%? No, it's not a stupid question. It's because we, the, the, the deal was so good. We stole the building. We did a great job renovating it. We got stellar rents. Mm-hmm. And like the, the bank went and looked at it, and they're like, yeah, this thing, I mean, we're, you know, it, it, <laughs> the built, like the, here's the value, and the thing can support 110. We were like, all right. So not only did they cash us out, but they also, like, it was they cashed out plus some. Um, and so, uh, in that scenario, obviously your, your, your yield at that point, your levered yield, uh, is infinite, right? Like there, mm-hmm. you're, you're, you, there's a numerator. It's the cash flow you're getting after the mortgage is paid. And in the denominator, there's no, it's zero. There's, you don't have any capital left. In the building. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so, so if you can do that, like don't sell that, just like, hold that building, yep. give the cap, give, you know, use the, the loan proceeds to give investors their money back and then just manage it. Like own yep. the building. Congratulations. You own an awesome building in Los Angeles. And like over time, um, hopefully the rents grow. Like we can't guarantee that they're going to grow at any particular time. Like they might go down this year. Um, yeah. But over the long run, they're likely to go up and they're likely to go up at, at faster than inflation. Hmm. Um and so you own that, and over time you refinance it again. You return capital again. You keep, you know, you're distributing operating cash flow uh, quarterly, basically in perpetuity. And from your investor's perspective, in instead of like in and out and taxes and brokers and 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 all this value being destroyed, they basically have their money back. I mean, maybe it's not all of it. Maybe it's eighty percent, eighty-five percent, whatever the number is. Yeah. After like eighteen months or whatever. So the opportunity cost of owning forever is very low, right? They have the money back. They can go do something else with it. If they like the stock market more, they can go put the money in the stock market. If they want to give it back to me and do this again, yeah. we do it again. Yep. Um, but but basically, like you're you you're getting so you're with, with, if you think about what I just described kind of rolled out over in deals, like however many deals you, you can capitalize, you can find mm-hmm. and capitalize. What you end up with is this very, very large portfolio, which is very thinly equitized, like with actual cash. I mean, there, there's plenty of equity from the, like if you, on a market, on a mark to market basis, there's plenty of equity, but your actual yeah. cash is out. Yep. So you're, you have no opportunity cost because you have the capital. You have, I guess you have risk because like there is, the buildings are worth something and it would suck if they burnt down or whatever, but, um, but you have your money back. So even that, like, oh, is that so bad? I mean, you don't, you don't want to, anyone, you don't want to burn buildings down, but I, you know what I mean? Like it's not so bad. Even if the disaster happens, well, you got most of your money back already. And, but you are benefiting from the compounding both in the rents and in the value of the buildings. So got you're it. getting the full compounding on the entire asset, but you only have a tiny, tiny, tiny amount of cash in there to control the asset. Yes, there's a lot of just natural leverage without necessarily using like so much leverage at at the the entire way through. Exactly. And so you're like, it's like most people, when they buy a normal deal, right? They like in LA now, maybe you put down 30, 35% cash and you borrow the rest and like you bought a five cap and you're borrowing it for, but there's loan AM. So like maybe if you're lucky, you're earning, you know, 5% on your, on your 
capital that's in the deal. Yep. Okay. Yeah. And that's if everything goes well, <laughs> right? Like yeah. pipes don't break, they're like whatever. Yeah. Okay. So so and then you're just like stuck there, <laughs> like right? You're you're earning your you're like mid single digits, and you're just plunking along, and you're getting your compounding, but you're compounding it. You're tying up an enormous. You're tying up all your capital. Yeah, exactly. Right. So you're experiencing the full opportunity cost. Okay. So it, instead, we're saying, give us the money, we'll give it back to you, and we'll effectively you're getting to buy like a seven or a six and a half or whatever it is. Um, and instead of putting down thirty five percent, we're going to put down like ten percent. Yep. So it's like you're you're doing a better deal and you're using more leverage. Yeah. But and but you're getting your money back, so it's kind of you risk, and and there's low opportunity cost. Um, and so, yeah. And so we, it, many investors, this, what I'm saying to you, which I don't know, depending on your orientation, like, like more than half the people that I explain that to basically hang up on me. They're like, what's the IRR, uh, permanent hold? Like, what the hell are you talking about? Like, yeah, that's not, this is not what I'm used to seeing. I don't right. know how to think about this. Like, right. Go away. Okay. Wow. I mean, but it makes sense. For, like. It just kind of yeah. makes sense from a cash flow perspective. Yeah. I guess if yeah. I guess if you focus on the cash flows, which is kind of an interesting dynamic because it goes back to, you know, this is why like I think there's so many connections between, you know, what how you look at buildings and 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 how value investors look at businesses because at the end of the day, it's 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 the cash flows that matter. It's just the cash flow. Yeah. Yep. It's just it's it's and this is why I I, I mentioned John Malone earlier. I mean, basically what John Malone was doing was saying, here is this small cable company that I can buy and I have this formula that I apply to the cable company that's going to juice its uh, its free cash flow. Okay. Well, it's going to juice its earnings. I guess it's cash flow. Um, and then I'm going to take, once I do that, I'm going to, I'm going to go back to the bank and with this increased uh, cash flow, I'm going to borrow more against it. I'm going to take that cash from the bank. I'm going to use it to buy another cable company. Yep, and I'm going to do the same thing that cable company, and then I'm going to do the same thing another one, another one, and that's like that's John Mark. Yeah, and he was like ruthless about having a threshold. I think it was from memory. I think it was twenty percent. Like in other words, he wanted to be earning a lever, a lever twenty. Yeah, from these projects, and yep. it's like very straightforward. Like if if the project could be, he he was very good at forecasting what he could do to the, to the small cable company, and uh, and if it. If it if it exceeded the twenty percent lever threshold, he would do the deal, and if it didn't, he would. For us, the way we think about it is very similar. It's just, can we generate an unlevered yield, which is two hundred fifty basis points higher than the interest rate at which we can borrow on the asset? Right. That's it. Right. And so you like obviously rates move around a little bit, and you're trying to forecast a little bit in the future what rates are going to be. So it's it's not perfect, but basically. If rates are four and you can make a six and a half cap, six and a half unlevered, you should do that deal. Yeah. If, yeah, no. you can, <laughs> if they're four, right? And yeah. it's five, don't, you know, don't do it. Yeah. And what that does is it's just very simple. It's like, but now the hard part is executing, is understanding which deal and how to do it and what rents are going to get and managing it well. I mean, there's, I don't want to, the, the devil is in the details. It's, it's, there's an enormous amount of sweat that goes in and, and knowledge and, and experience that goes into doing this, but the math is really simple. So how are you finding, how are you, how are you finding these deals, right? Because you talk a lot about turning over a lot of rocks and just kind of going through, um, looking at 
situations from a different lens that others might not look at them, which then gives you yep. a chance to create a deal that others aren't seeing. And so how do you, how do you yeah. find those ideas? Well, look, we've been buying the same kind of beat up apartment buildings in Los Angeles for like 10 years now, all cash. <laughs> like, yeah. we're, we're in, in many ways, we're like the broker's best friend, right? Like the broker's got some client who wants to sell his crappy building for a price that's like really high relative to the existing income. Right. And he's like, who the hell's going to buy this? Term? Not many people line right? it like, up for that. <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, and so they know that we're the guys who, in certain circumstances, will do it. And so, what that means is I see God knows how many deals a day. Like, I get all the, I see all the off market stuff. I, you know, I also see all the on market stuff, you know, and, and 99 times out of 100, it's obviously stupid. I mean, I had a deal today. I'm not going to like mention it by name, but you know, a guy who knows that I've done a ton of deals in one neighborhood brings me steal. He's like, 10 units. Here's the price per square foot. Like, blah, blah, blah. You know, you can raise rent. Blah. And I'm just like, dude, like, I can look at that number right now and I can tell you that there's no chance that that makes sense. Hmm. And someone is going to buy that deal like on the basis of his pitch yeah. with the idea of copying me. Yeah. I guarantee you, someone will, I will see that building again 18 months from now and it will look like one of my buildings. A lot of people copy kind of the design stuff that we do. Huh. Um, it will look like one of my buildings. It will, and it's annoying because like it gives the tenants more, you know, it basically hurts my uh, pricing power, but it, yeah, but yeah, it yeah. is what it is. I can't, you know, I can't control, but um, it will look like one of my buildings. It'll be in the neighborhood where all my other buildings are. People will be like, huh, this is my building. Like, and I'm like, I know what the numbers are <laughs> and it looks like my building, but that's it's not like, my building, like my building, <laughs> but that's not my building. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And so, so that's like, you know, and you have to kind of, it's a little bit painful to see, to see, you know, when people copy you and you, 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 it, it, it's resentful because ideally you would, uh, there would be no one trying to buy these buildings and the price would fall and then it would fall low enough to where I could buy it. Um, right. Right. Uh, but that's not the real world. The real world is, the vast majority of things, even when they ostensibly fit our, you know, the kind of general pattern, the vast majority still don't work. But every once in a while, for reasons that are kind of part of the magic, like of how we look at things, one will pop up and like, like, you know, I went in contract on one yesterday. And yeah. it's in an area we've done a lot of stuff before. And we've got to, I assure you that I don't, I assure you that everyone else looking at this building is not looking at it the way we will. Like what we're going to do to the building is not what they would do. Yeah. And it makes sense. I mean, we'll see, we're going to inspect it. Maybe it'll go wrong. Like maybe we won't buy it. Like a lot of things can go wrong between now and whatever, 18 months from now when that thing's finished. But, uh, and it's getting harder and harder to find these things. Um, really hard. Uh, but they're out there as well. But you have to, you kind of have to, like I said, look at it through a different lens than, yeah. uh, than other people. And speaking speaking of design, I just I just kind of wanted to wanted to get some to get some clarification. Now, I was doing some research, and is your wife the designer of these buildings or the interiors no. of these? <laughs> no, are you kidding me? She would murder me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, no, my wife Simran. Um, the company is called Simran Design. I encourage yeah. everyone to check it out. Um, you know, she does like high end houses for people. Okay. Um, okay. For like for real rich people. Yeah. Because um, I thought you guys had almost like a Chip and Chip and Joanna vibe going on there. I was like, no, oh. no. It's, I mean, it's cool. It's no, it's cool. She would, no. I'm telling you, she literally would murder me. And, and the stuff that the stuff that we do is is it's it's nice, but it's not fancy. It's like yeah. it's a little hard to explain. We're we're trying to go for like timeless. 
I don't want to say generic, but like timeless is good. Like clean, modern, like uh, straight lines, not a ton of, of ornamentation. We don't want the buildings to look aged five years from now or 10 years from now. Yeah. Um, you know, we want people to be able to project their dwell magazine fantasies onto the units. Yeah. So, um, you know, she does, she does really, really fancy stuff for people who have a, a, I mean, her stuff is awesome. I was, I was, I was looking at the website and I was like, damn, (laughs) this is some, yeah, no, it's cool, but it's, it's it's a very specific point of view Yeah. and and like, and, and that's cool. Like, but we, our stuff needs to, like, we are to own a thing forever. And like, I don't want to have to go change the colors every five minutes (laughs) or like have it look crappy like five years from now. It's got to, it has to be you know, kind of timeless enough to, 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 to last. Yeah. Take us, take us through how you value an apartment building in the sense of, um, one of the, one of the ways I saw you do it and you had a great blog post on, uh, it's called 822 Sanborn. You did a teardown <laughs> of that, of that apartment. Um, and yeah. what I liked about it is it reminded me of almost the EV to EBITDA multiple that public equity investors yep. use sure. where you yep. take, you know, just, because I'm going to paint a broad brush and I just want you to maybe to go down the rabbit hole a little bit is, is you just take the rent, let's call it 2000 bucks a month for rent, multiply that by yep. the, 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 the amount of months, 12. And then, you know, yep. you take the purchase price, divide that. And then there's your multiple. And it was just really cool yep. as like yep. a quick heuristic to go through, yep. you know, hundreds of deals. Yep. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. So uh, that what you're referring to is GRM gross rent multiple. Okay. And, um, it's, uh, it's, some people do it times 12 and some people don't. It's like, there's like an East coast, West coast going, thing going on, but the concept is exactly right. Divide the purchase price by the forecast annual rents. And, uh, it's funny. You mentioned that blog post when I looked at it yesterday <laughs> and, uh, it's like, that, I made me want to cry. I'm like, that was a building in Silver Lake for less than $200 a square foot. And like, I wrote that blog, that blog post because it was a screaming deal at the time. I was like, my God, this is cheap. And I didn't have any clients. And I didn't have any money. So I You're like, someone it. please give me money so I can buy this thing. Yes. I mean, I was like, I will broker it. I mean, at a certain point, I probably would have brokered it for free because it was like money lying on the ground. I just like wanted someone to pick it up. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah. So um, at that time, the market in Los Angeles was probably um, that, that it was reasonable to pay like 10 or 12 times or 10 or 11 times the annual rent. Okay. Um, uh, and, and if you're, if you can make a deal where you're at least in LA operating expenses vary in, uh, in markets like LA, it's pretty cheap to run buildings because property taxes are reasonably low. And um, you know, there's not a lot of weather problems. Like, so, you know, you're not dealing with snow and rain and everything. So things yeah. last here. <laughs> um, but, uh, so, so in LA, like if you can figure out how to do a deal at like 11, 12 times the rent, that's going to be the, because of the way that the operating expenses work out, generally you're going to do pretty well. Yeah. Like that's a, that's a reasonable yield. It'll depend on the exact unit configuration and all that stuff, but you're probably looking at a, um, an unlevered yield of like six, you know, if it's 12 times, maybe you're going to earn 6% a year or something like that. Just okay. roughly. Yeah. Um, if you, the problem is that market in Los Angeles now is probably like, I don't know, depending on the neighborhood, like 15 times, 16 times, 17 times the rent. Wow. And if you go into a deal like that, you pay 17 times the rent and you don't have a plan to improve the building. Like, I, I don't know why you're doing it. Yeah. Like you're just like the cash flow at that point. You're like, like, yeah, maybe in theory you're going to, that's a, I don't know, a two, like a three or a 4% or something like that on leverage, but like, 
when you start to work on margins that thin, it's like whatever, like the plumbing breaks and there's your cash flow for the year. And something, so not, and something probably always goes wrong on these types of deals, right? I mean, something construction yeah, well, always goes wrong. Yeah, particularly these older buildings. Like for ours, part of the reason that we do this gut renovation is because since we know we're going to own it forever, we mm. want to kind of capitalize the costs up front. Yep. Right. And then not deal with the ongoing optics later. Yeah. And then make sure everything's like, squared yeah. away. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. If you're going to buy like a regular, and we have uh, buildings in our management portfolio that are not fully renovated like that. Mm-hmm. And it's just like without fail, like a few times a year, there's some like thousand dollar problem, few yep. thousand dollar problem, whatever. And that stuff like over time that really eats into your yield. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So, I mean, so, so anyway, so if you're, if you're buying stuff, at, you know, 17 times, 18 times, I mean, people are honestly, people are marketing deals right now 20 times the rent. There's like, that's stupid. Like if yeah. you, like, I don't know why you don't buy a bond or like, I don't know. Like, <laughs> almost anything would be smarter than doing that. Wow. Yeah. Especially um, with all that capital that you're tying up for just that low a yield. Oh yeah. You're I mean, think about it. You're getting negative leverage, right? Like, because yep. you're, when you're, if you buy a three and the loans at four and the four and the loan amortizes. So like you have to, it's not just the interest you have to amortize the world like you're gonna like you're lucky if the thing cash flow like you better you'd be better off just buy a little cash so yeah. i mean people there's a lot of people who want to own real estate in la and, and over time uh la real estate has tended to appreciate pretty rapidly so it's not crazy like people do it because they're just like whatever i'm a dentist i have a spare 500k i'm gonna buy this building I don't really care if I get a yield on it. Like I'll wake up 10 years from now or whatever. And I'll, you know, the cash flow will have gone up and I'll be I'll, I'm fine, you know, whatever. Um, so it's not, I get why they do it, but that's not, for, uh, as a professional investor, like that's not going to cut it. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, yep. That's that's not, my, my capital is too expensive for that. I got to find better stuff to do with it. Yeah. And especially if you can find deals like 822 Sanborn where you're, you know, scratching and clawing for people to give you money at that point. Um. Oh, well, the, yeah, well, I mean, that illustrates though, like, I mean, I'm sure the people listening to this have, or some of them kind of lived through the recession. Like, I don't know, I think I probably wrote that blog post in like 2011 or I don't know, like, good luck trying to raise money after everyone's been burnt. It's like, yeah. it's that precisely, the reason the price was so low is because yep. everyone was terrified. Yeah. Um, and, so the trick in our business, and maybe this is a good thing to kind of close on, um, the trick in our business is you have to understand, you got to do deals, right? Like if you're a professional money manager in the real estate business, you have to buy real estate, particularly when you're, when you're early in your career. Like you're going to starve if you don't do something. Right, right. Okay. But the problem is if you're overly aggressive, okay, at, when you're at a cyclical peak, mm-hmm. You can get yourself in real trouble when the when the market turns. Yeah, and the problem is that it's when the market turns that there's real money to be made. That's like when that's the Warren Buffett like go, you know there's a rainstorm don't bring a thimble like go get buckets. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know, maybe maybe Munger said that. Like the investors are the buckets. Yep. Right. Like that, they're going to give you the buckets. Yeah. So you need to not do anything so stupid now at a cyclical peak that your investors are pissed off at you at precisely the time that you need the buckets. Mm. So yep. that's the, that is the trick of our business is it, it, it's you, you, you got to do stuff, but you want to be cautious because you don't want to like torch those investor relationships that are fundamentally like the, what you need to do the business. Mm. 
Yeah, that's so good. And you know, that's that's a that's a that's a perfect perfect kind of uh topic just to kind of wrap up. It's been man, I feel like man, we've been an hour, almost an hour and a half. It just feels like a straight blitz of just knowledge bombs dropping. <laughs> Your, um, your listeners are all asleep. Wake up, guys. <laughs> no, it's actually, I started this podcast and it was like bright in the room and I didn't need any lights on and the light switch is far enough away where I'm just now sitting in pitch darkness. <laughs> but it is what well, it I is. I appreciate you staying awake. <laughs> but okay, so cool. So if, so if people want to find out more about you, I mean, I know that I mentioned your Twitter. So if you want to just give them your Twitter handle and then, um, you know, where they can go to learn more about you and maybe if they're interested in, in, in learning more about real estate. Uh, so my name is Moses, like the Bible, Kagan, K-A-G-A-N. And uh, my Twitter handle is just at Moses Kagan. And um, my company is called Adaptive Realty. Um, so if you just Google my name, like you'll find my website, you'll find the Twitter, you'll find the Adaptive Realty website. Um, so there's, and you know, my I, my DMs are open. And I think my web, my, my email address may even be on the, on the website, it's Moses at adaptiverealty.com. Now you all have it. Uh, <laughs> feel free to reach out. I'm always happy to talk real estate with uh, with fellow real estate dorks, and um, and uh, we'll go from there. Yeah. And so the last question I ask I ask every guest, and I'm interested to get your opinion. Uh, if you could have dinner with one person, past or present, doesn't have to be financial related or real estate related, mm. who would it be and why? Boy, that's such a good question. There's like about a million different. Um, uh, you 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 uh, you gave a question to me before the podcast so, and yeah. i'm still wrestling with i know a good answer <laughs> um uh, i'll tell you this is really sort of lying on me as a human being um the answer i think is abraham lincoln oh that's <laughs> um, yep um, that's a good I'm, one i'm like so, yeah, well, separately from my um, from my my real estate uh, uh, nerd nerdery, um, I, you know, I, I studied pol- political theory in college, and uh, I'm like I, I read a lot of history. So I read a lot of read a lot of business biography, but I also read a lot of history, and um, really interested in political science and political theory and philosophy and everything. And um, you know, that guy had like a deep understanding about our country and its institutions and where we came from and kind of a vision of of uh, where we are going and i just think it would be super awesome to be able to sit down with someone uh with that kind of vision and kind of talk to him about where we are and where we've been and and and, and get his thoughts on, uh, on where we're going i couldn't agree more i his his movie uh lincoln was was one of the best oh, historical movies that i've I ever cried. seen i cried yeah. i cried yeah <laughs> it was embarrassing <laughs> yep no i watched it I've, I've watched it multiple times it's just it's just so good so good but uh yeah. moses thanks so much again for 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 coming on the show i can't wait to release this and uh, i know people are going to really enjoy our conversation and i learned so much so i know others are going to learn thanks so much for saying that brandon i appreciate it i appreciate uh everyone who's uh managed to uh to listen to the whole thing thank you so much awesome see you